attempt at bringing audiobooks to the podcast format. I have never released podcasts or done much voice recording in general, so this will be a steep learning curve and hopefully you can be nice and forgiving, particularly these first few episodes. This podcast consists of me reading books that are old enough to have entered into public domain. In Australia, this is primarily determined by how long ago the authors have died. The book selections will be entirely determined by my own interest. Because of this, there will probably be an unintentional pattern to genres and authors, though the intention is to read a wide variety of works. We are currently part way through a reading of The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. The text I am reading from is a product of Project Gutenberg. Project Gutenberg relies on volunteers to produce its work. Definitely go and take a look and consider contributing where you can. If you have not listened to the previous episodes, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to them first for the best experience. And now to continue our reading from The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. Manhood 1. The Laughing Valley When Klaus came, the valley was empty, save for the grass, the brook, the wild flowers, the bees and the butterflies. If he would make his home here and live after the fashion of men, he must have a house. This puzzled him at first, but while he stood, smiling in the sunshine, he suddenly found beside him old Nelko, the servant of the master woodsman. Nelko bore an axe, strong and broad, with blade that gleamed like burnished silver. This he placed in the young man's hand, then disappeared without a word. Klaus understood, and turning to the forest's edge, he selected a number of fallen tree trunks, which he began to clear of their dead branches. He would not cut into a living tree. His life among the nymphs who guarded the forest had taught him that a live tree is sacred, being a created thing endowed with feeling. But with the dead and fallen trees it was different. They had fulfilled their destiny as active members of the forest community, and now it was fitting that their remains should minister to the needs of man. The axe bit deep into the logs at every stroke. It seemed to have a force of its own and Klaus had but to swing and guide it. When shadows began creeping over the green hills to lie in the valley overnight, the young man had chopped many logs into equal lengths and proper shapes for building a house such as he had seen the poorer classes of men inhabit. Then, resolving to await another day before he tried to fit the logs together, Klaus ate some of the sweet roots he well knew how to find, drank deeply from the laughing brook, and lay down to sleep on the grass, first seeking a spot where no flowers grew, lest the weight of his body should crush them. And while he slumbered and breathed in the perfume of the wondrous valley, the spirit of happiness crept into his heart and drove out all terror and care and misgivings. Never more would the face of Klaus be clouded with anxieties, Never more would the trials of life weigh him down as with a burden. The Laughing Valley had claimed him for its own. Would that we all might live in that delightful place. But then, maybe it would become overcrowded. For ages it had awaited a tenant. Was it chance that led young Klaus to make his home in this happy vale? Or may we guess that his thoughtful friends, the immortals, had directed his steps when he wandered away from Bursey to seek a home in the great world. Certain it is that while the moon peered over the hilltop and flooded with its soft beams the body of the sleeping stranger, the laughing valley was filled with the queer, crooked shapes of the friendly nooks. These people spoke no words, but worked with skill and swiftness. The logs Klaus had trimmed with his bright axe were carried to a spot beside the brook and fitted one upon another, and during the night a strong and roomy dwelling was built. The birds came sweeping into the valley at daybreak, and their songs, so seldom heard in the deep wood, aroused the stranger. 
He rubbed the web of sleep from his eyelids and looked around. The house met his gaze. I must thank the nooks for this, he said, gratefully. Then he walked to his dwelling and entered at the doorway. A large room faced him, having a fireplace at the end and a table and bench in the middle. Beside the fireplace was a cupboard. Another doorway was beyond. Klaus entered here also and saw a smaller room with a bed against the wall and a stool set near a small stand. On the bed were many layers of dried moss brought from the forest. Indeed, it is a palace, exclaimed the smiling Klaus. I must thank the good nooks again for their knowledge of man's needs as well as for their labours in my behalf. He left his new home with a glad feeling that he was not quite alone in the world, although he had chosen to abandon his forest life. Friendships are not easily broken, and the immortals are everywhere. Upon reaching the brook, he drank of the pure water, and then sat down on the bank to laugh at the mischievous gambols of the ripples as they pushed one another against rocks, or crowded desperately to see which should first reach the turn beyond. And as they raced away, he listened to the song they sang. Rushing, pushing, on we go, not a wave may gently flow. All are too excited, every drop delighted, turns to spray in merry play as we tumble on our way. Next, Klaus searched for roots to eat, while the daffodils turned their little eyes up to him laughingly and lisped their dainty song. Blooming fairly, growing rarely, never flowerets were so gay, perfume breathing, joy bequeathing, as our colours we display. It made Klaus laugh to hear the little things voice their happiness as they nodded gracefully on their stems. But another strain caught his ear as the sunbeams fell gently across his face and whispered, Here is gladness that our rays warm the valley through the days. Here is happiness to give comfort unto all who live. Yes, cried Klaus in answer. There is happiness and joy in all things here. The Laughing Valley is a valley of peace and goodwill. He passed the day talking with the ants and beetles and exchanging jokes with the light-hearted butterflies and at night he lay on his bed of soft moss and slept soundly. Then came the fairies, merry but noiseless bringing skillets and pots and dishes and pans and all the tools necessary to prepare food and to comfort a mortal. With these they filled cupboard and fireplace, finally placing a stout suit of wool clothing on the stool by the bedside. When Klaus awoke, he rubbed his eyes again and laughed and spoke aloud his thanks to the fairies and the master woodsman who had sent them. With eager joy, he examined all his new possessions wondering what some might be used for. But, in the days when he had clung to the girdle of the great Ack and visited the cities of men, his eyes had been quick to note all the manners and customs of the race to which he belonged. So he guessed from the gifts brought by the fairies that the master expected him hereafter to live in the fashion of his fellow creatures. Which means that I must plough the earth and plant corn, he reflected so that when winter comes, I shall have garnered food in plenty. But as he stood in the grassy valley, he saw that to turn up the earth in furrows would be to destroy hundreds of pretty, helpless flowers, as well as thousands of the tender blades of grass. And this he could not bear to do. Therefore, he stretched out his arms and uttered a peculiar whistle he had learned in the forest, afterward crying, Rills of the field flowers, come to me. Instantly, a dozen of the queer little rills were squatting upon the ground before him, and they nodded to him in cheerful greeting. Klaus gazed upon them earnestly. Your brothers of the forest, he said, I have known and loved many years. I shall love you also when we have become friends. To me, the laws of the rills whether those of the forest or the field are sacred. I have never willfully destroyed one of the flowers you tend so carefully, 
but I must plant grain to use for food during the cold winter. And how am I to do this without killing the little creatures that sing to me so prettily of their fragrant blossoms? The yellow rill, he who tends the buttercups, made answer. Fret not, friend Klaus. The great Ack has spoken to us of you. There is better work for you in life than to labour for food, and though, not being of the forest, Ack has no command over us, nevertheless are we glad to favour one he loves. Live, therefore, to do the good work you are resolved to undertake. We, the field rills, will attend to your food supplies. After this speech, the rills were no longer to be seen, and Klaus drove from his mind the thought of tilling the earth. When next he wandered back to his dwelling, a bowl of fresh milk stood upon the table. Bread was in the cupboard, and sweet honey filled a dish beside it. A pretty basket of rosy apples and new plucked grapes was also awaiting him. He called out, Thanks, my friends, to the invisible rills, and straightway began to eat of the food. Thereafter, when hungry, he had but to look in the cupboard to find goodly supplies brought by the kindly rills, and the nooks cut and stacked much wood for his fireplace, and the fairies brought him warm blankets and clothing. So began his life in the Laughing Valley, with the favour and friendship of the immortals to minister to his every want. 2. How Klaus Made the First Toy Truly our Klaus had wisdom, for his good fortune but strengthened his resolve to befriend the little ones of his own race. He knew his plan was approved by the immortals, else they would not have favoured him so greatly. So he began at once to make acquaintance with mankind. He walked through the valley to the plain beyond, and crossed the plain in many directions to reach the abodes of men. These stood singly, or in groups of dwellings called villages, and in nearly all the houses, whether big or little, Klaus found children. The youngsters soon came to know his merry, laughing face, and the kind glance of his bright eyes, and the parents, while they regarded the young man with some scorn for loving children more than their elders, were content that the girls and boys had found a playfellow who seemed willing to amuse them. So the children romped and played games with Klaus, and the boys rode upon his shoulders, and the girls nestled in his strong arms, and the babies clung fondly to his knees. Wherever the young man chanced to be, the sound of childish laughter followed him, and to understand this better you must know that children were much neglected in those days, and received little attention from their parents, so that it became to them a marvel that so goodly a man as Klaus devoted his time to making them happy. And those who knew him were, you may be sure, very happy indeed. The sad faces of the poor and abused grew bright for once, the cripples smiled despite his misfortune. The ailing ones hushed their moans and the grieved ones their cries when their merry friend came nigh to comfort them. Only at the beautiful palace of the Lord of Lerd and at the frowning castle of the Baron Brown was Klaus refused admittance. There were children at both places, but the servants at the palace shut the door in the young stranger's face and the fierce baron threatened to hang him from an iron hook on the castle walls, whereupon Klaus sighed and went back to the poorer dwellings where he was welcome. After a time, the winter drew near. The flowers lived out their lives and faded and disappeared. The beetles burrowed far into the warm earth. The butterflies deserted the meadows, and the voice of the brook grew hoarse, as if it had taken cold. One day, snowflakes filled all the air in the Laughing Valley, dancing boisterously towards the earth and clothing in pure white raiment the roof of Klaus's dwelling. At night, Jack Frost rapped the door. Come in, cried Klaus. Come out, answered Jack, for you have a fire inside. So Klaus came out. He had known Jack Frost in the forest and liked the Jolly Rogue, even while he mistrusted him. There will be rare sport for me tonight, Klaus, shouted the sprite. Isn't this glorious weather? 
I shall nip scores of noses and ears and toes before daybreak. If you love me, Jack, spare the children, begged Klaus. And why? asked the other in surprise. They are tender and helpless, answered Klaus. But I love to nip the tender ones, declared Jack. The older ones are tough and tire my fingers. The young ones are weak and cannot fight you, said Klaus. True, agreed Jack, thoughtfully. Well, I will not pinch a child this night, if I can resist the temptation, he promised. Good night, Klaus. Good night. The young man went in and closed the door, and Jack Frost ran on to the nearest village. Klaus threw a log on the fire, which burned up brightly. Beside the hearth sat Blinky, a big cat given him by Peter the Nook. Her fur was soft and glossy, and she purred never-ending songs of contentment. I shall not see the children again soon, said Klaus to the cat, who kindly paused in her song to listen. The winter is upon us, the snow will be deep for many days, and I shall be unable to play with my little friends. The cat raised a paw and stroked her nose thoughtfully, but made no reply. So long as the fire burned and Klaus sat in his easy chair by the hearth, she did not mind the weather. So passed many days and many long evenings. The cupboard was always full, but Klaus became weary with having nothing to do more than to feed the fire from the big wood pile that Nooks had brought him. One evening, he picked up a stick of wood and began to cut it with his sharp knife. He had no thought at first, except to occupy his time, and he whistled and sang to the cat as he carved away portions of the stick. Puss sat up on her haunches and watched him, listening at the same time to her master's merry whistle, which she loved to hear even more than her own purring songs. Klaus glanced at Puss, and then at the stick he was whittling, until presently the wood began to have a shape, and the shape was like the head of a cat, with two ears sticking upward. Klaus stopped whistling to laugh, and then both he and the cat looked at the wooden image in some surprise. Then he carved out the eyes and the nose, and rounded the lower part of the head so that it rested upon a neck. Puss hardly knew what to make of it now, and sat up stiffly, as if watching with some suspicion what would come next. Klaus knew. The head gave him an idea. He plied his knife carefully and with skill, forming slowly the body of the cat, which he made to sit upon its haunches as the real cat did, with her tail wound around her two front legs. The work cost him much time, but the evening was long and he had nothing better to do. Finally, he gave a loud and delighted laugh at the result of his labours and placed the wooden cat, now completed, upon the hearth opposite the real one. Puss thereupon glared at her image, raised her hair in anger, and uttered a defiant mew. The wooden cat paid no attention, and Klaus, much amused, laughed again. Then Blinky advanced towards the wooden image to eye it closely and smell of it intelligently. Eyes and nose told her the creature was wood, in spite of its natural appearance. So Puss resumed her seat and her purring, but as she sat neatly, washed her face with her padded paw, she cast more than one admiring glance at her clever master. Perhaps she felt the same satisfaction we feel when we look upon good photographs of ourselves. The cat's master was himself pleased with his handiwork, without knowing exactly why. Indeed, he had great cause to congratulate himself that night, and all the children throughout the world should have joined him rejoicing, for Klaus had made his first toy. 3. How the Rills Coloured the Toys A hush lay on the Laughing Valley now, Snow covered it like a white spread, and pillows of downy flakes drifted before the dwelling where Klaus sat, feeding the blaze of the fire. The brook gurgled on beneath a heavy sheet of ice, and all living plants and insects nestled close to Mother Earth to keep warm. The face of the moon was hid by dark clouds, and the wind, delighting in the wintry sport, 
pushed and whirled the snowflakes in so many directions that they could get no chance to fall to the ground. Klaus heard the wind whistling and shrieking in its play and thanked the good nooks again for his comfortable shelter. Blinky washed her face lazily and stared at the coals with a look of perfect content. The toy cat sat opposite the real one and gazed straight ahead, as toy cats should. Suddenly, Klaus heard a noise that sounded different from the voice of the wind. It was more like a wail of suffering and despair. He stood up and listened, but the wind, growing boisterous, shook the door and rattled the windows to distract his attention. He waited until the wind was tired and then, still listening, he heard once more the shrill cry of distress. Quickly he drew on his coat, pulled his cap over his eyes and opened the door. The wind dashed in and scattered the embers over the hearth, at the same time blowing Blinky's fur so furiously that she crept under the table to escape. Then the door was closed and Klaus was outside, peering anxiously into the darkness. The wind laughed and scolded and tried to push him over, but he stood firm. The helpless flakes stumbled against his eyes and dimmed his sight, but he rubbed them away and looked again. Snow was everywhere, white and glittering. It covered the earth and filled the air. The cry was not repeated. Klaus turned to go back into the house, but the wind caught him unawares, and he stumbled and fell across a snowdrift. His hand plunged into the drift and touched something that was not snow. This he seized and, pulling it gently toward him, found it to be a child. The next moment he had lifted it in his arms and carried it into the house. The wind followed him through the door, but Klaus shut it out quickly. He laid the rescued child on the hearth, and brushing away the snow he discovered it to be Weakham, a little boy who lived in a house beyond the valley. Klaus wrapped a warm blanket around the little one and rubbed the frost from its limbs. Before long, the child opened his eyes and, seeing where he was, smiled happily. Then Klaus warmed milk and fed it to the boy slowly, while the cat looked on with sober curiosity. Finally, the little one curled up in his friend's arms and sighed and fell asleep. And Klaus, filled with gladness that he had found the wanderer, held him closely while he slumbered. The wind, finding no more mischief to do, climbed the hill and swept on toward the north. This gave the weary snowflakes time to settle down to earth, and the valley became still again. The boy, having slept well in the arms of his friend, opened his eyes and sat up. Then, as a child will, he looked around the room and saw all that it contained. Your cat is a nice cat, Klaus, he said at last. Let me hold it. But Puss objected and ran away. The other cat won't run, Klaus, continued the boy. Let me hold that one. Klaus placed the toy in his arms and the boy held it lovingly and kissed the tip of its wooden ear. How did you get lost in the storm, Weakum? asked Klaus. I started to walk to my auntie's house and lost the way answered Weakum. Were you frightened? It was cold, said Weakum, and the snow got in my eyes, so I could not see. Then I kept on till I fell in the snow, without knowing where I was, and the wind blew the flakes over me and covered me up. Klaus gently stroked his head, and the boy looked up at him and smiled. I'm all right now, said Weakum. Yes, replied Klaus happily. Now I will put you in my warm bed and you must sleep until morning when I will carry you back to your mother. May the cat sleep with me? asked the boy. Yes, if you wish it to, answered Klaus. It's a nice cat, Weakum said, smiling, as Klaus tucked the blankets around him and presently the little one fell asleep with the wooden toy in his arms. When morning came, the sun claimed the Laughing Valley and flooded it with his rays. So Klaus prepared to take the lost child back to its mother. May I keep the cat, Klaus? 
asked Wakem. It's nicer than real cats. It doesn't run away or scratch or bite. May I keep it? Yes, indeed, answered Klaus, pleased that the toy he had made could give pleasure to the child. So he wrapped the boy and the wooden cat in a warm cloak, perching the bundle upon his own broad shoulders, and then he tramped through the snow and the drifts of the valley and across the plain beyond to the poor cottage where Weakum's mother lived. See, Mama, cried the boy as soon as they entered, I've got a cat. The good woman wept tears of joy over the rescue of her darling and thanked Klaus many times for his kind act. So he carried a warm and happy heart back to his home in the valley. That night he said to Puss, I believe the children will love the wooden cats almost as well as the real ones, and they can't hurt them by pulling their tails and ears. I'll make another. So this was the beginning of his great work. The next cat was better made than the first. While Klaus sat whittling it out, the yellow rill came in to make him a visit, and so pleased was he with the man's skill that he ran away and brought several of his fellows. There sat the red rill, the black rill, the green rill, the blue rill, and the yellow rill in a circle on the floor, while Klaus whittled and whistled, and the wooden cat grew into shape. If it could be made the same colour as the real cat, no one would know the difference, said the yellow rill thoughtfully. The little ones maybe would not know the difference, replied Klaus, pleased with the idea. I will bring you some of the red that I colour my roses and tulips with, cried the red rill, and then you can make the cat's lips and tongue red. I will bring some of the green that I colour my grasses and leaves with, said the green rill and then you can colour the cat's eyes green. They will need a bit of yellow also, remarked the yellow rill. I must fetch some of the yellow that I used to colour my buttercups and goldenrods with. The real cat is black, said the black rill. I will bring some of the black that I use to colour the eyes of my pansies with, and then you can paint your wooden cat black. I see that you have a blue ribbon around Blinky's neck, added the blue rill. I will get some of the colour that I use to paint the blue bells and forget-me-nots with, and then you can carve a wooden ribbon on the toy cat's neck and paint it blue. So the rills disappeared, and by the time Klaus had finished carving out the form of the cat, they were all back with the paints and the brushes. They made Blinky sit upon the table, that Klaus might paint the toy cat just the right colour, and when the work was done, the rills declared it was exactly as good as a live cat. That is, to all appearances, added the red rill. Blinky seemed a little offended at the attention bestowed upon the toy, and that she might not seem to approve the imitation cat, she walked to the corner of the hearth and sat down with a dignified air. But Klaus was delighted, and as soon as morning came, he started out and tramped through the snow across the valley and the plain until he came to a village. There, in a poor hut near the walls of the beautiful palace of the Lord of Lerd, a little girl lay upon a wretched cot, moaning with pain. Klaus approached the child and kissed her and comforted her, and then he drew the toy cat from beneath his coat where he had hidden it, and placed it in her arms. Ah, how well he felt himself repaid for his labour and his long walk when he saw the little one's eyes grow bright with pleasure. She hugged the kitty tight to her breast as if it had been a precious gem and would not let it go for a single moment. The fever was quieted, the pain grew less, and she fell into a sweet and refreshing sleep. Klaus laughed and whistled and sang all the way home. Never had he been so happy as on that day. When he entered his house, he found Shiegra, the lioness, awaiting him. Since his babyhood, Shiegra had loved Klaus, and while he dwelt in the forest, she had often come to visit him at Nasil's bower. After Klaus had gone to live in the Laughing Valley, Shiegra became lonely and ill at ease, and now she had braved the snowdrifts, which all lions abhor, to see him once more. Shiegra was getting old, and her teeth were beginning to fall out, 
while the hairs that tipped her ears and tail had changed from tawny yellow to white. Klaus found her lying on his hearth, and he put his arms around the neck of the lioness and hugged her lovingly. The cat had retired into a far corner. She did not care to associate with the Shiegra. Klaus told his old friend about the cats he had made and how much pleasure they had given Weakham and the sick girl. Shiegra did not know much about children. Indeed, if she met a child, she could scarcely be trusted not to devour it. But she was interested in Klaus's new labours and said, These images seem to me very attractive. Yet I cannot see why you should make cats, which are very unimportant animals. Suppose, now that I am here, you make the image of a lioness, the queen of all beasts. Then, indeed, your children will be happy, and safe at the same time. Klaus thought this was a good suggestion, so he got a piece of wood and sharpened his knife, while Shiegra crouched upon the hearth at his feet. With much care he carved the head in the likeness of the lioness, even to the two fierce teeth that curved over her lower lip and the deep, frowning lines above her wide-open eyes. When it was finished, he said, You have a terrible look, Shiegra. Then the image is like me, she answered, for I am indeed terrible to all who are not my friends. Klaus now carved out the body, with Shiegra's long tail trailing behind it. The image of the crouching lioness was very lifelike. It pleases me, said Shiegra, yawning and stretching her body gracefully. Now I will watch while you paint. He brought the paints that Rills had given him from the cupboard and coloured the image to resemble the real Shiegra. The lioness placed her big padded paws upon the edge of the table and raised herself while she carefully examined the toy that was her likeness. You are indeed skillful, she said proudly. The children will like that better than cats, I'm sure. Then snarling at Blinky, who arched her back in terror and whined fearfully, she walked away toward her forest home with stately strides. Four. How little Mary became frightened. The winter was over now, and all the Laughing Valley was filled with joyous excitement. The brook was so happy at being free once again that it gurgled more boisterously than ever, and dashed so recklessly against the rocks that it sent showers of spray high in the air. The grass thrust its sharp little blades upward through the mat of dead stalks where it had hidden from the snow but the flowers were yet too timid to show themselves, although the rills were busy feeding their roots. The sun was in remarkably good humour and sent his rays dancing merrily through the valley. Klaus was eating his dinner one day when he heard a timid knock on his door. Come in, he called. No one entered, but after a pause came another rapping. Klaus jumped up and threw open the door. Before him stood a small girl holding a smaller brother fast by the hand. Is you Klaus? she asked, shyly. Indeed I am, my dear, he answered with a laugh, as he caught both children in his arms and kissed them. You are very welcome, and you have come just in time to share my dinner. He took them to the table and fed them with fresh milk and nut cakes, and when they had eaten enough he asked, why have you made this long journey to see me? I want a tat, replied little Mary, and her brother, who had not yet learned to speak many words, nodded his head and exclaimed like an echo, Tat! Oh, you want my toy cats, do you? returned Klaus, greatly pleased to discover that his creations were so popular with children. The little visitors nodded eagerly. Unfortunately, he continued, I have but one cat now ready, for I carried two to children in the town yesterday, and the one I have shall be given to your brother, Mary, because he is the smaller, and the next one I make shall be for you. The boy's face was bright with smiles as he took the precious toy Klaus held out to him, but little Mary covered her face with her arm and began to sob grievously. Uh, I want a tat now, she wailed. 
Her disappointment made Klaus feel miserable for a moment. Then he suddenly remembered Shiegra. Don't cry, darling, he said soothingly. I have a toy much nicer than a cat, and you shall have that. He went to the cupboard and drew out the image of the lioness, which he placed on the table before Mary. The girl raised her arm and gave one glance at the fierce teeth and glaring eyes of the beast, and then, uttering a terrified scream, she rushed from the house. The boy followed her, also screaming lustily, and even dropping his precious cat in his fear. For a moment, Klaus stood motionless, being puzzled and astonished. Then he threw Shiegra's image into the cupboard and ran after the children, calling to them not to be frightened. Little Mary stopped in her flight and her brother clung to her skirt, but they both cast fearful glances at the house until Klaus had assured them many times that the beast had been locked in the cupboard. Yet why were you frightened at seeing it? he asked. It is only a toy to play with. It's bad, said Mary, decidedly, and, and just horrid and not a bit nice like tats. Perhaps you are right returned Klaus thoughtfully. But if you will return with me to the house, I will soon make you a pretty cat. So they timidly entered the house again, having faith in their friend's words, and afterward they had the joy of watching Klaus carve out a cat from his bit of wood and paint it in natural colours. It did not take him long to do this, for he had become skilful with his knife by this time, and Mary loved her toy the more dearly because she had seen it made. After his little visitors had trotted away on their journey homeward, Klaus sat long in deep thought, and he then decided that such fierce creatures as his friend the lioness would never do as models from which to fashion his toys. There must be nothing to frighten the dear babies, he reflected, and while I know Shiegra well and am not afraid of her, it is but natural that children should look upon her image with terror. Hereafter, I will choose such mild-mannered animals as squirrels and rabbits and deer and lambkins from which to carve my toys, for then the little ones will love rather than fear them. He began his work that very day, and before bedtime had made a wooden rabbit and a lamb. They were not quite so lifelike as the cats had been, because they were formed from memory, while Blinky had sat very still for Klaus to look at while he worked. But the new toys pleased the children nevertheless, and the fame of Klaus's playthings quickly spread to every cottage on plain and in village. He always carried his gifts to the sick or crippled children, but those who were strong enough walked to the house in the valley to ask for them, so a little path was soon worn from the plain to the door of the toymaker's cottage. First came the children who had been playmates of Klaus, before he began to make toys. These, you may be sure, were well supplied. Then children who lived farther away heard of the wonderful images and made journeys to the valley to secure them. All the little ones were welcome, and never a one went away empty-handed. This demand for his handiwork kept Klaus busily occupied, but he was quite happy in knowing the pleasure he gave to so many of the dear children. His friends the immortals were pleased with his success and supported him bravely. The nooks selected for him clear pieces of soft wood, that his knife might not be blunted in cutting them. The rills kept him supplied with paints of all colours and brushes fashioned from the tips of timothy grasses. The fairies discovered that the workmen needed saws and chisels and hammers and nails as well as knives and brought him a goodly array of such tools. Klaus soon turned his living room into a most wonderful workshop. He built a bench before the window and arranged his tools and paints so that he could reach everything as he sat on his stool, and as he finished toy after toy to delight the hearts of little children, he found himself growing so gay and happy that he could not refrain from singing and laughing and whistling all the day long. It is because I live in the Laughing Valley where everything else laughs, said Klaus. But that was not the reason. 5. How Bessie Blithesome Came to the Laughing Valley One day, 
as Klaus sat before his door to enjoy the sunshine while he bitterly carved the head and horns of a toy deer. He looked up and discovered a glittering cavalcade of horsemen approaching through the valley. When they drew nearer, he saw that the band consisted of a score of men-at-arms, clad in bright armour and bearing in their hands spears and battle-axes. In front of these rode little Bessie Blythesome, the pretty daughter of a proud Lord of Lerd, who had once driven Klaus from his palace. Her palfrey was pure white, its bridle was covered with glittering gems, and its saddle draped with cloth of gold, richly broidered. The soldiers were sent to protect her from harm while she journeyed. Klaus was surprised, but he continued to whittle and to sing until the cavalcade drew up before him. Then the little girl leaned over the neck of her palfrey and said, Please, Mr. Klaus, I want a toy. Her voice was so pleading that Klaus jumped up at once and stood beside her, but he was puzzled how to answer her request. You are a rich lord's daughter, said he, and have all that you desire. Except toys, added Bessie. There are no toys in all the world but yours. And I make them for the poor children who have nothing else to amuse them, continued Klaus. Do poor children love to play with toys more than rich ones? asked Bessie. I suppose not, said Klaus, thoughtfully. Am I to blame because my father is a lord? Must I be denied the pretty toys I long for because other children are poorer than I? She inquired earnestly. I'm afraid you must, dear, he answered, for the poor have nothing else with which to amuse themselves. You have your pony to ride, your servants to wait on you, and every comfort that money can procure. But I want toys, cried Bessie, wiping away the tears that forced themselves into her eyes. If I cannot have them, I shall be very unhappy. Klaus was troubled, for her grief recalled to him the thought that his desire was to make all children happy, without regard to their condition in life. Yet, while so many poor children were clamouring for his toys, he could not bear to give one of them to Bessie Blythesome, who had so much already to make her happy. Listen, my child, said he, gently. All the toys I am now making are promised to others, but the next shall be yours, since your heart so longs for it. Come to me again in two days, and it shall be ready for you. Bessie gave a cry of delight, and leaning over her pony's neck, she kissed Klaus prettily on his forehead. Then, calling to her men-at-arms, she rode gaily away, leaving Klaus to resume his work. If I am to supply the rich children as well as the poor ones, he thought, I shall not have a spare moment in the whole year. But is it right I should give to the rich? Surely I must go to Nasil and talk with her about this matter. So when he had finished the toy deer, which was very like a deer he had known in the forest glades, he walked into Bursey and made his way to the bower of the beautiful nymph Nasil, who had been his foster mother. She greeted him tenderly and lovingly, listening with interest to his story of the visit of Bessie Blythesome. And now tell me, said he, shall I give toys to rich children? We of the forest know nothing of riches, she replied. It seems to me that one child is like another child, since they are all made of the same clay, and that riches are like a gown, which may be put on or taken away, leaving the child unchanged. But the fairies are guardians of mankind, and no mortal children better than I. Let us call the Fairy Queen. This was done, and the Queen of the Fairies sat beside them and heard Klaus relate his reasons for thinking the rich children could get along without his toys, and also what the nymph had said. Nasil is right, declared the Queen. For, whether it be rich or poor, a child's longings for pretty playthings are but natural. Rich Bessie's heart may suffer as much grief as poor Mary's. She can be just as lonely and discontented, and just as gay and happy. I think, friend Klaus, 
It is your duty to make all little ones glad, whether they chance to live in palaces or in cottages. Your words are wise, fair queen, replied Klaus, and my heart tells me they are as just as they are wise. Hereafter, all children may claim my services. Then he bowed before the gracious fairy and, kissing the seal's red lips, went back into his valley. At the brook he stopped to drink, and afterward he sat on the bank and took a piece of moist clay in his hands while he thought what sort of toy he should make for Bessie Blythesome. He did not notice that his fingers were working the clay into shape until, glancing downward, he found that he had unconsciously formed a head that bore a slight resemblance to the nymph Nasile. At once he became interested. Gathering more of the clay from the bank, he carried it to his house. Then, with the aid of his knife and a bit of wood, he succeeded in working the clay into the image of a toy nymph. With skillful strokes he formed long, wavy hair on the head, and covered the body with a gown of oak leaves, while the two feet sticking out at the bottom of the gown were clad in sandals. But the clay was soft, and Klaus found that he must handle it gently to avoid ruining his pretty work. Perhaps the rays of the sun will draw out the moisture and cause the clay to become hard, he thought. So he laid the image on a flat board and placed it in the glare of the sun. This done, he went to his bench and began painting the toy deer, and soon he became so interested in the work that he forgot all about the clay nymph. But next morning, happening to notice it as he lay on the board, he found the sun had baked it into the hardness of stone, and it was strong enough to be safely handled. Klaus now painted the nymph with great care in the likeness of Nasile, giving it deep blue eyes, white teeth, rosy lips, and ruddy brown hair. The gown he coloured oak leaf green, and when the paint was dry, Klaus himself was charmed with the new toy. Of course, it was not nearly so lovely as the real Nasile, but Considering the material of which it was made, Klaus thought it was very beautiful. When Bessie, riding upon her white palfrey, came to his dwelling next day, Klaus presented her with the new toy. The little girl's eyes were brighter than ever as she examined the pretty image, and she loved it at once, and held it close to her breast as a mother does to her child. What is it called, Klaus? she asked. Now Klaus knew that nymphs do not like to be spoken of by mortals, so he could not tell Bessie it was an image of Nasile he had given her. But as it was a new toy, he searched his mind for a new name to call it by, and the first word he thought of he decided would do very well. It is called a dolly, my dear, he said to Bessie. I shall call the dolly my baby, returned Bessie, kissing it fondly and I shall tend it and care for it just as nurse cares for me. Thank you very much, Klaus. Your gift has made me happier than I have ever been before. Then she rode away, hugging the toy in her arms, and Klaus, seeing her delight, thought he would make another dolly better and more natural than the first. He brought more clay from the brook, and remembering that Bessie had called the dolly her baby, he resolved to form this one into a baby's image. That was no difficult task to the clever workman, and soon the baby dolly was lying on the board and placed in the sun to dry. Then, with the clay that was left, he began to make an image of Bessie Blythesome herself. This was not so easy, for he found that he could not make the silken robe of the Lord's daughter out of the common clay. So he called the fairies to his aid and asked them to bring him coloured silks with which to make a real dress for the clay image. The fairies set off at once on their errand, and before nightfall they had returned with generous supply of silks and laces and golden threads. Klaus now became impatient to complete his new dolly, and instead of waiting for the next day's sun, he placed the clay image upon his hearth and covered it over with glowing coals. By morning, when he drew the dolly from the ashes, it had baked as hard as if it had lain a full day in the hot sun. Now our Klaus became a dressmaker as well as a toy maker. He cut the lavender silk and nearly sewed it into a beautiful gown that just fitted the new dolly. And he put a lace collar around its neck and pink silk shoes on its feet. 
The natural colour of baked clay is a light grey, but Klaus painted the face to resemble the colour of flesh, and he gave the dolly Bessies brown eyes and golden hair and rosy cheeks. It was really a beautiful thing to look upon, and sure to bring joy to some childish heart. While Klaus was admiring it, he heard a knock at his door, and little Mary entered. Her face was sad, and her eyes red with continued weeping. Why, what has grieved you, my dear? asked Klaus, taking the child in his arms. I've... I've woke my tat, sobbed Mary. How? he inquired, his eyes twinkling. I... I dropped him and broke off him's tail, and, and, and then I dropped him and broke off him's ear, and now him's all spoilt. Klaus laughed. Never mind, Mary dear. How would you like this new dolly instead of a cat? Mary looked at the silk-robed dolly, and her eyes grew big with astonishment. Oh, Klaus, she cried, clapping her small hands together with rapture. Can I have that beautiful lady? Do you like it? he asked. I love it, said she. It's better in tats. Then take it, dear, and be careful not to break it. Mary took the dolly with a joy that was almost reverent, and her face dimpled with smiles as she started along the path towards home. That's all we've got time for today. Tune in next time for more readings from... The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum.